the Night Owl Podcast, Campfire Episode 2, The Monsters Might Be Real. Welcome to the Night Owl Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Ballou, and this is a place for all you restless spirits out there to tune in and hear true tales of the paranormal. I hunt these stories down, capture them from the mouths of those who experience them, and share them with you right here. If you have a story to tell, we're currently looking for more personal ghost stories, so if you or someone you know has one, please submit it to us for consideration. Go to thenightowlpodcast.com, click on the Submit Your Story page, and let us hear your ghost story. We'd love to consider it for the show. Tonight, we have our second Campfire episode of the Night Owl Podcast. If you've been listening to the show, then you're undoubtedly familiar with our investigative episodes where I travel to haunted places, bring my clairvoyant friend Sarah, do historical research, and offer up theories and sometimes even validation for the experiences people are having in their place of business or home. Well, tonight is something a little different. Our Campfire episodes will be much like the name implies, a selected collection of personal ghost stories told by the people who experienced them themselves. I'm simply gathering personal ghost stories, selecting my favorites, and curating them into collections that I'll share with you here on the second Monday of every month from now on. In tonight's Campfire episode, we have two eerie tales of the supernatural for you. First, we'll hear from Linda, who, growing up, was taught never to meddle with the other side. But against her best judgment, and with a little peer pressure from her best friend, Linda's first session with a Ouija board as a teenager might have actually been the catalyst for a sighting of her very own doppelganger. Following Linda's story, we'll hear from Alisar and her mother Janet, who shed light on a dark, malicious presence that they faced in Alisar's childhood home in Austin, Texas. Tune in to hear this emotional tale with a daughter who swears that the monsters under her bed were real, and a mother who has to face the fact that she might be right. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Oh Boy Print Shop. When you need custom t-shirts, this shop's got your back. At Oh Boy, they've made customer satisfaction and quality their top priorities. Their aim is to supply you with quality products that meet your every need. Specializing in custom screen printing for organizations, clothing companies, schools, businesses, and even events. Big or small, Oh Boy is here to help. Crisp, clean t-shirt printing without setup fees or hidden costs and always delivered on time. Oboyprintshop.com. That's O H B O Y printshop.com. And now, mention the Night Owl podcast and get $50 off your first order. When I was in eighth grade, we took a field trip to San Antonio to visit the city's famous Alamo and another museum while we were in town. I grew up in a really tiny South Texas town, and it's a pretty long drive to get anywhere but we were a small school and only needed to take one large bus for the trip. At the end of the day, we piled back into the bus. I made my way toward the back of the bus and plopped into a seat by the window. Parked parallel to us was another school bus, and its students were also falling in for their departure. I gathered my Sony Discman, heavy metal CDs, threw my headphones over my ears, and prepared for the one-and-a-half-hour trip back home. As Iron Maiden began blasting in my ears, my eyes naturally moved to look out the window that I was leaning against. I was staring directly at the other bus, parallel to us. It took my eyes a second to see through the reflective surface of the window directly across from me, but when they did adjust, I had to do a double take. Sitting in the exact same seat, leaning against the window, looking back at me from the other bus, was a kid my age. We locked eyes. He too had headphones on. Now normally this would just be a short, awkward moment where we both shuffle in our seats and fiddle with our headphones and turn away in this awkward eye-locking moment. But neither of us turned away. Instead, our eyes widened and our mouths began to hang open with something just dying to come out. Something someone would hear and turn to look back at what we were both seeing. Because what I saw, sitting in the bus parked beside us, was me. The word doppelganger actually was first introduced by German author Jean-Paul in 1796 in a book he wrote wherein the protagonist exchanges identities with a lookalike. The German word's literal translation is double walker or double goer. However, the myth of the double dates as far back as ancient Egypt, where in mythology a ka, K-A, was regarded as a tangible spirit double that could possess the same memories and feelings as their counterpart. In Norse mythology, they had another name, one I'd rather not try to attempt here and butcher, for the same double walker. They were reported as ghostly doubles who preceded their living counterparts, 
seen by many in places and performing actions prior to their living counterparts arriving and repeating the same actions. Even Cherokee legends mention spirits called Nanehi, who impersonate living individuals and even take on their names. The Cherokee also believe that if you offended these entities, it would bring about death. Some myths just see these doubles as spirits imitating an individual, but others strongly believe the sighting of one's doppelganger to be a terrible omen of one's own demise. Doppelgangers aren't just bound to legends, stories, and writings, however. They've also been documented in several real-life accounts. In 1860, Abraham Lincoln reported seeing his double beside him in a reflection in a mirror. The sight of it troubled him deeply because it appeared pale and ghostly in complexion. And it appeared to him two more times after this until he was eventually killed in 1865. After that day in San Antonio, life continued as usual for me, though. In all honesty, I believe I saw a kid that just strongly resembled me. And that's all. But in that moment, sitting in the bus, seeing what I believed to be myself looking back at me from another bus window was one of the most unnerving moments in my life. So in the story you're about to hear, Linda shares some unique experiences she had growing up, delving into the dangerous territory of experimenting with Ouija boards and ultimately encountering what she truly believes was her actual doppelganger. My name is Linda, and I'm originally from a small West Texas town, 50 miles east of Lubbock, and it was about 1990. My parents had sold our original home that we grew up in, and they purchased a a home that was a block down, and uh, it was an older home, and I really realized, like, I didn't understand why we had to sell our old home to move into this new one, but immediately it just felt very different in that home. I remember that I always felt like the house was kind of like breathing. Well, the first week that we moved in, I went to the drive-in with my older brothers and sisters, and my mom and dad stayed home. And they fell asleep. There was no central AC in that house, so they slept with the windows open. It was a cool summer night. My dad said that they were asleep and that he was suddenly awakened. And he looked up above his head because the the bed was pushed against the two windows in their bedroom and that he was awakened by a girl standing on the outside looking into, into the bedroom. And when he focused his eyes, he said that it was me, 11 year old me looking into the home, but I was smoking a cigarette and just kind of studying the room. And he got really upset because In his mind, he's thinking, I'm not where I said I was going to be. So he gets dressed, runs outside, and no one's there. So maybe an hour to two hours later, we arrive home. My sister's dropping us off, and my mother runs out to come get me and says, where were you? And I said, I was at the drive-in. It's impossible for me to have been probably 10 miles out of town, come to, like, spook you guys and then disappear. Like, that's—it's impossible. So moving forward, it's 1998, and my best friend was moving into our home because her mother is moving to Florida now that we had graduated high school, and me and my best friend were going to move in together to room. So I noticed when I was helping her move in that she had a Ouija board, and I told her, you need to hide this immediately when you get into my room because my mom would not appreciate that you brought this into our home. My mom especially is very religious, and I knew that it was like something bad that you shouldn't be doing. She challenged me. She's like, well, the next time your parents go out and run an errand, you need to do this with me because I've done it with my cousins, and she's talking about how much fun it is. And I don't know, I just felt like maybe for once I don't need to be a goody two-shoes and just try it. So the opportunity presented itself. My parents were going to an out-of-town doctor's appointment, and she whipped it out and said, this is it, let's do it, let's seize the moment. So she's, she brought it out, put our fingers on the planchette, and immediately it just said hello, like we hadn't even asked a question yet. And that was kind of freaky, and of course, you do that thing where you start blaming the other person, like, you're moving it, no, you're moving it. Your eyes are open, you're doing it, like trying to freak me out. So we, we're doing that back and forth thing. I'm letting my, my friend ask all the questions and it presented itself as a young adult or like a, a young teenager and that it had died sometime on the property. 
And as we're getting into a full-on conversation with this uh, spirit, my parents roll back into the driveway. And eventually what I found out is that my mother forgot her purse. So my friend flings the board under my bed. Uh, and we never actually finished the session with um, the spirit that we were speaking to. We're sitting on the bed nervously. And my mom kind of figured that we were doing something wrong because we were just being so, we, we were just so obvious. She grabs her purse, leaves, and I just felt like the atmosphere, the, the air in the room was very different. And I said, aren't we supposed to say goodbye or something? I was like, that's what like they say on the movies. And she says, yes, we need to take it back out and find it and say goodbye. Or I think that it like follows you. I mean, I have no clue how Ouija boards work. So we, we connect with it again and we say goodbye. So I swore I would never work. I would never touch a Ouija board ever again. So then comes, I'm in college. I'm in a loft now where only sophomores can live. And this is in Leveland, Texas. And they have an all-girls apartment that are lofts. I got randomly chosen to live with three other people. And the first night, you know, I'm kind of trying to get used to living with somebody that I don't know because, you know, as I said before, my best friend was my roommate in the year prior. So just trying to be cool and, you know, they start talking about spirits and ghosts and then the conversation steered over into Ouija boards. So I said, you know, they asked, you know, who's, who's done the Ouija board before? And I kind of raised my hand and I told them my story. They were just like, well, what does it look like? So I grabbed a piece of paper and I drew it out and I said, it says, you know, hello, goodbye, yes, no, and then the alphabet and then numbers. So then someone said, well, couldn't we just use this as a Ouija board? And I was just like, I, again, I don't know anything about Ouija boards, but okay, let's, let's try it. I said, I won't, I'm not going to touch it though. I won't participate because I just promised myself I wouldn't do it again. I don't like it. So the planchette here was a bottle cap from like a three liter of soda and it really wasn't gliding. So then I came up with the idea, well, let's put like four quarters on the inside of it to give it some weight. So that's what they did. And they were just like, well, just, can you just put your finger on there? You don't even have to close your eyes. So we begin a session and I've broken my promise to myself and we start asking questions to whoever's out there can you respond and immediately it was like a frantic like um the planchette that homemade planchette became very frantic we were trying to say hello hello and it just was like all over the place and again i do that thing where like you're moving it no you're moving it and it eventually just settles down and we get in a conversation with this spirit and she's saying that she was a sophomore living on the campus and that she was raped and murdered on campus now, I've, like, gone back through books, I've gone back through newspapers, and I don't, I don't find any record of something like this happening, because she's saying that it happened, she, she was there in the 80s. But again, it's 19, maybe 2000, actually, when we did this, and I don't find any stories in the 1980s, and I went ahead and went into the 1990s. I don't find a story about a woman that was killed on campus or raped. So I say, you know, I'm kind of freaked out right now, guys. I don't, I don't, I don't want to do this. And I like pulled away and I said, I'll be right back. So I just went to the bathroom to wash my face and I came back down and the, the homemade board we made was gone and all that was left was a bottle cap with the quarters. And I asked uh, my roommates, two of my roommates, where's, where's the board? And they said, oh, this guy came over and he said that this is bad. So he ripped it. He ripped the spiral page out and... He's burning it outside. And I was like, but we didn't say goodbye. I was like, this is bad. Uh, and I don't think you're supposed to burn it, as like from what I've heard. So again, the session was not closed. After that, again, it's like the beginning of the school year, fall 2000. And I'm getting trying to get used to these three random people that I'm living with and not really getting along with them. Like, we're just not clicking. I don't know what's going on, but I have a friend that, I can go stay with so I'm staying mostly at her home and just coming back to the loft to get clothes and I lived in the upstairs loft. I came home for lunch one day randomly and there was a note on the whiteboard that said Linda we've called the priest. Rachel was here earlier and she heard pig noises coming in from the inside of the walls and there there's things moving around there's a lot of like weird things and I think it's connected to the Ouija board. 
and then they they wrote call me so I called them we spoke for a minute or two and I said well you can't really tell the priest why you're inviting him over because he's going to be upset he's going to give you this long lecture about how you know it's not really good it's not moral to to reach out to spirits on a Ouija board so I said just tell them that it's it's just because you want the place blessed so that's what they did I wasn't present for the blessing but um it was probably now November the original Ouija board happened in September of 2000 and now it's November and all the girls are gone they're not in the apartment so I just came by to grab some more clothes and I was going to leave and my friend Jamie said I'm gonna drop you off I gotta go visit somebody really quickly I'll come back to pick you up so I was alone in the loft and this is after the priest had come and he had blessed the entire place he blessed the three other girls that were staying there all the time. But again, I wasn't there when he came to bless the space. So I run upstairs. Um, it's completely dark in the kitchen area downstairs and in the first bedroom. I run upstairs, turn on the light, and grab my clothes and like a weekend bag to like just leave. And I know that my friend's going to take a moment or two to come back and get me. So go ahead and start my routine, getting ready for bed. I start washing my face, brushing my teeth. But I remember distinctly having suds on my face, scrubbing my face. And all of a sudden the lights flickered. And after they flickered, they weren't as bright now. The, the lights were like yellow now instead of like the bright white that they were. And... The air in the apartment felt almost humid um, and very sticky. And it just looked really odd all around me. So again, I have like soap and suds all over my face, um, but not in my eyes. And I remember looking down the stairs because the stairs led up to like the sink area. And that's where I was. So I could see straight down just by turning to the left down the stairs. And at the very end of the stairs... I saw myself. What I was wearing, my hair down, but I was like a paler version of myself with sunken dark eyes. But I could still see like a pupil, I could still see the white of the eyes. And But it looked like I had been rolling around in the dirt and leaves is what I looked like. And I was climbing the stairs slowly almost like a slow motion of myself and I don't even remember like breathing at this point like I remember like catching my breath like thinking oh my god and she looks at me and she just smirks very it was a very evil smirk like I'm coming to get you you're in so much trouble once I get you and this feeling of dread came over me and I I remember just like slapping my hands together dropping to my knees and just praying make this go away Probably a minute after, the lights flickered again and it became bright in the room. And I don't remember rinsing my face off. I remember putting a towel over my face and wiping off whatever I had on my face, grabbing my bag, running out the door. And I was really, really dreading running down the stairs, but I had to, I had to do it to get out of the apartment, slamming the door shut. And I never really stayed in the apartment much after that. We all have that experience in our life that someone says they saw you somewhere where you clearly were not because you were somewhere else or that they saw your double or that they spoke to you last week when you weren't even in town I always I always summed it up to I just have one of those faces but I mean the I think the whole Ouija board experience was tied to that house and whatever it was had doubled itself a long time ago when we first moved in it, it took a liking to me and continue to follow me throughout my life because in 1998 when we when I, I was a senior in high school I went to Mexico for the very first time I've never left the country uh, on a missionary trip and the host where we were going to be staying and this is outside of Mexico City in a little colony um, 27 or 27 and it's like again like no water no running water no electricity and the host when I reached out to sh like shake her hand she immediately grabbed me and pulled me in and hugged me and she's like you're back and I said excuse me she's like you were here just last week with a group from California how did you make it to Texas and then now you're back and I was like I, I don't know what you're talking about and you know I had to get the group in like we were in school we we're here because there's Christmas break 
So she was like, no, it was you. You have freckles and you have curly hair. And I remember your body shape and I remember your voice and your name is Linda. And I said, it is, it is Linda, but I wasn't here. I remember that night for dinner as well. She was making quesadillas for everyone. And as she was extending her pl the plate to me, I was like, oh, I'm sorry. She's like, I know. She's like, yours are made of goat cheese. She's like, I remember that you're lactose intolerant, which like blew my mind. Because again, it was not me that was there the week before. So from the moment that my father saw me looking into the window, uh, the double of me, he continued to see this girl that resembled me or was me playing hide-and-go-seek with him, popping out from around the corner and saying, waving hello to him and then popping, you know, hiding again. And he'd always, like, wherever it was, like, popping out of, he'd go to that room or go to that hallway and he'd never find anyone. And he knew that, you know, as I was growing older, this, this double remained the same age, 11 years old. And all of that stopped probably in 2003 because they they knocked the home down and rebuilt a new one on the same property, but he's never seen the little girl ever again. After hearing Linda's story, a story that always resonated with me came to mind. And it's actually something that our team member, Sarah, has relayed to me on multiple occasions. We've briefly alluded to what I'm referring to here on some of our past investigative episodes. Sarah calls an entity that resembles her husband the Double Walker. She's been seeing him for years. So instead of just letting Linda's story end here, I thought it'd be interesting to actually ask Sarah about her experiences with this so-called Double Walker and hear some of her theories regarding doppelgangers and what Linda claimed to have seen. I actually have a couple theories, but I'll, I'll get into that in a minute. With Renee's Double Walker, for me, the way that I see I see him, it's actually not like an exact copy of my husband. I think at some point in time, I saw this spirit in uh, its real form, like its real person, and it scared me. And so then it chose to look like use the similar look and feel as my husband so that I wouldn't be frightened every time. And over, over, over time, um, like initially when I first saw him, he looked exactly like my husband, like the same build, the same frame, the same, you know, everything. And then I, he even, I don't know how to explain it, but he felt like him. So when he entered the room, I, I would immediately get the feeling like, oh, it's my husband. Like that was the feeling that I got. I still to this day get that feeling. We could be in a crowded room, Renee walk in and I know that he's there. I get the same feeling, but it's not Renee that I'm feeling. It's the spirit. It's the double walker that I see, which I, at some point in time, I need to give him a name. Over the years, as I've gotten accustomed to seeing him and accustomed to the little things that he does, because he, he's been known to touch me, wrap his arms around me, uh, do things like that. There's been times where I've seen him walk a path, like I've seen him go directly somewhere, like through the store or in the house or outside in the yard. And when I look like, oh, look, he's outside or, oh, he's doing this. And then when I look again, it's not there. And then I see him, like, I see him coming at me. Hey, what are you doing? What are you looking at? You know? And I'm like, I swear to God, you were just like right there. Like you just walked by, or I saw you do this an hour ago. It's the, the strangest thing. People who can produce that type of, you know, either a manifestation of themselves or a, a spirit double of themselves. So over, over time, I've gotten accustomed to seeing him that now he looks similar to Renee, but he's not his exact copy. And other people have said that they've seen somebody that looks like him, similar, younger, in his younger age. So my theory for our double walker, our, our shared double walkers, I actually believe that this was a guiding spirit that Renee had before he met me. And for some reason, when we got together, he either took on uh, a liking to me, and so he just kind of stayed around. And in order to not scare me, took the same form. I think he does it so that he doesn't scare people. So that's my theory for our double walker. I'm not quite sure. In this girl's case, I've had a similar experience as a younger child. My One of my older brothers said when I was younger, he swore he saw me like sitting in the living room in the middle of the night, like at two o'clock in the morning. And he even, he was like, what are you doing? Why are you up you know, this late? You need to go to bed. And for some reason, he looked away for a moment and went back and I was gone. And so he was like, what? So he went to my bedroom to see and I was laying in bed. So he wasn't here for a while. He thought maybe she's sleepwalking or she's doing something. 
but he was like, it was just too weird. I would have passed you in the hallway had you gone back to bed. So there's no way. I believe that there are some people who can actually manifest themselves while they're dreaming or sleeping. So they manifest themselves and they can, you can see them. They project themselves out while they're sleeping. And sometimes that projection just lingers around. The fact that her dad said even later, he's seeing the same the same person, but it's the same age, like the still stuck at 11, kind of tells me that it was that type of manifestation. I believe, though, what she saw in college was not that manifestation of herself. It wasn't really her double walker. I think that was just a strange spirit that might have just still been lingering around from whatever was whatever energy was left over the house. It's just a theory, um, but I think that's what it was. And it chose that form because it already knew she was familiar with that, right? It said, let's, you know, how do we get her? How do we scare her? I mean, nothing scarier than seeing your own self. Um, there's a lot of research that we've done on Renee's Double Walker where people say, hey, if you see yourself, you know, you, you might pass away right after. But that's just been, you know, total theory and we kind of debunked it a little bit. So I think that's just one of those wise tales. Uh, but to me... I think there's just multiple things. Either you yourself can manifest that second person for some reason. It's either a guardian spirit that you've pushed out or a copy of yourself that you've kind of lingered around a little bit, a spirit that's chosen to take your form. That's how I see Renee's double walker. But I think in college, what she saw that was not anything associated like that. That was literally something that was intending on purpose to scare her and took that form. Just a theory. I don't know. (laughs) The mythos of doppelgangers have continued to mystify us through the centuries. However, with the passage of time, I think we've come to grow more curious and fascinated rather than fearful of them. Now, instead of standing in shock or rushing away from a person who looks exactly like us, we'll approach them with our smartphones and ask for a selfie to post on Instagram. But in some cases, like that of Linda's, I think we'd all drop to our knees and pray to whatever we believed in. But parts of Linda's story also resonated with me because I too, maybe like many of you, often get told that I was spotted somewhere that I wasn't, or get hugged by random strangers who think I'm someone else. It happens a lot to me, and I've always assumed I just had one of those faces, like Linda. But maybe it's more than that. Maybe there is someone, or something out there, that's my counterpart. Maybe it's that kid I saw on the bus in 8th grade. Who knows? After this short break... We'll have another great campfire story for you, so stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Oh Boy Print Shop, custom printed t-shirts made in Austin with love. Now, there are many reasons why I love this family-owned print shop and why Oh Boy is my go-to shop for all things Night Owl, but let me pick one to rave to you about today. Have you ever ordered custom tees from an event or bought some from your favorite band or company, only to realize that they're thick, scratchy, and look like you're wearing a bag that isn't very flattering on you? Well... That's one thing that won't happen to you when you're with Oh Boy Print Shop. They offer a variety of t-shirts to provide the right choice to meet your needs. I myself prefer comfortable, slightly fitted tees that look and feel awesome enough to wear every day, either by themselves or under a throwover shirt or sweater. Oh Boy Print Shop helped me pick out a tee that fit those needs, and honestly, when I open my closet in the morning, I skip all my other tees and go straight for the Night Owl shirt because it's the most comfortable and flattering tee in my entire closet now. Oh Boy's aim is to provide you with the options that help you get the product that meets your every need. So, there's no more need for hesitating. Order your first batch of custom printed tees with Oh Boy Print Shop today, and you'll be in great hands. Plus, now you can get $50 off your first order by simply mentioning the Night Owl Podcast. So what are you waiting for? Visit ohboyprintshop.com. That's O-H-B-O-Y printshop.com. As kids, I'm sure many of us can recall being afraid of the dark, imagining there were monsters hiding in the closet or under our bed. We relied on our parents to come in and make it all better, tell us that the shadows were just from a tree limb outside our window, that the noise we heard was just the house shifting, and that there was no actual monster under our bed, just a smelly old pair of socks that we'd lost under there. But in the story you're about to hear, our worst nightmare as kids came true for one young girl. Alisar and her family moved from California to Texas, and immediately upon settling into their new home, began noticing something dark lurking in the shadows of certain rooms in her house. Her cats would notice and react strangely to this presence as well, 
And like all children, Alisar was no different in screaming out for her mom when this presence began to expand its territory and into her room at night. But in this story, Alisar's mom couldn't easily tell her daughter that this monster wasn't real, because secretly, she knew this one was. Uh, well, my name is Alisar, and I'm originally from California, and all of this started pretty immediately upon moving to Texas. So we, we came to Austin when I was about six years old and into this really pretty, pretty new house. It was big and bright. There's a lot of windows, a lot of light. It's just a gorgeous place. Pretty soon after we moved in, I got my first pet, which was this little tiny gray cat named Raindrop. And I absolutely loved this thing. It would follow me everywhere. So we'd run all over the house playing. But this cat would not follow me into the downstairs guest room in our house, which didn't really make sense because it's... It's a big room, big window, really bright, nothing that you would think would be particularly frightening. And it's just at the end of this long hall between the kitchen and the garage. And there's no windows there, it's just kind of an alley straight to this room. And I would drag the cat's toy into the room and it would not follow, it wouldn't cross the threshold. No matter what, I tried to bribe it with treats, I tried to bribe it with just anything I could do, just to try to show it that it didn't need to be afraid, and it would never come in. So one day, because I was maybe seven, I got fed up with this, and I just took the cat and I put it on the bed. And the instant that its feet hit the bed, it darted back out of the room into the hall, and it turned around, and it looked at me, and then it kind of looked up and past me. And I got this kind of creeping feeling the cat wasn't looking at me. It just kind of felt a, a presence up and behind me as if some kind of like an adult were standing over me but there was nobody else in the room and so I turn around to see what the cat is seeing and of course there's nothing there I do remember though feeling like the room got a little bit darker and I mean that was enough for me me and the cat did not need to play in that room anymore so went elsewhere just didn't didn't bother with it but over the years I would catch this cat as it grew up, as we both grew up, sitting outside that room in the hall, just sitting there, staring into the empty guest room. It could be during the day, it could be at night, it would just stare, sometimes for like an hour, sitting there with its tail twitching, not moving. And I had no idea what it was watching. Until one day I found out. And I was probably eight or nine. It was summer vacation, so it was this really bright day outside and I was playing outside. I came in through the garage, I was going towards the kitchen, and you pass the room along the way, and I caught something out of the corner of my eye, something kind of dark that was blocking the window. I noticed that it was particularly dark in that room, strangely so for how bright the day outside was and how large the window in the room was. So I kind of ducked back to check it out, not really knowing what I would see, and in front of the window there was this... It's hard to describe because it was a form without form. It was this lightless spot in front of the window, like somebody standing there. And as I watched it, it seemed to notice and then drop, like somebody had dropped a heavy curtain and it just kind of pooled on the floor. And what was more intimidating than any of the imagery was that this feeling of absolute rage came rolling out of this room. Something was deeply upset. It was mad and I ran screaming. I bolted upstairs. I was finding my mom. I told her what happened and what I saw and she kept calm and she told me, alright, we're going to go downstairs and we're going to check this room. I promise you there's going to be nothing there, but we're going to check. So I'm hiding behind her the whole time. We go downstairs. She looks in the room you know, in the closet, under the bed, behind the desk, under the desk, just everywhere. And she's, see? Nothing. There's nothing here. I promise you, okay? You just got a really active imagination. And she did admit, though, that the room did seem oddly dark for the time of day. But other than that, like, there was nothing strange. My name is Janet. I'm Alistair's mom. We purchased a house. We lived in 97, I believe, Alistair's five or six years old when we moved here. Also, I've always seen things, but this house in particular held some darkness in two 
particular rooms, her bedroom, and there's a, another bedroom downstairs. Even animals, our, our pets, cats, did not want to go in these two rooms. They would pass the rooms and look in with caution or sometimes arch and back away. Alistair and I both always felt that there was something. And in the beginning, it wasn't quite as substantial as it became, but it tended to menace Alistair. She did have a couple episodes where she would wake up distressed, screaming, crying, that something was in her room. As her mom, of course, you run in there and you, you know, want to assure your child that there's nothing... Uh, nothing there. You check under the bed, you check in the closet, you know, you do all those parenting things you do, even though you can sense something there. And her fear was very real. You know, you do everything you can to settle down, help her go back to sleep. The animals, like I said, didn't want to spend time in those rooms either. When she would go downstairs, she would start to go down that hallway and she would back up. And she would tell me, there's, there's something there. I, of course, would go and look. I would feel something there, but again, you don't, as mom, want to tell your child that you feel something there. So it's like, no, 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 it's okay. It's a, it's a shadow. Um, you know, you get the willies. Uh, you know, something passes by outside. But, you know, you just want to make up all these, you know, reasons for that feeling or what might have looked like it was there. The shadowy. She used to describe it as a, like a, a darker dark. As a, as a younger child, that's, that's the best way she could describe it to me. It's a darker dark, and there's a darkness within the dark, and I know exactly what she's talking about. But no, honey, everything's fine. Everything's fine. That should have been the end of it, and of course it was not. As I grew older, I kept seeing it out of the corner of my eye, that dark, low-to-the-ground, rolling, angry thing that I had seen in that room. I kept seeing it, and it was always a quick, darting motion usually at first in that hallway between the kitchen and the garage or in and out of the room. The cat didn't sit there anymore. The cat wanted nothing to do with the space. And I thought, all right, fine. I'm not going to go there either. I don't need to be in that part of the house. But then it kept expanding its territory. Sometimes I'd see it in the kitchen. Sometimes I'd see it in the living room. And then I saw it going up the stairs. And every single time I was assured, like, I promise you there's nothing there. You have an active imagination. Maybe you're tired. Maybe you need to go to sleep. One day, I must have been 12. I slept with my room door open. I don't recall exactly why, but I could see from my room door the top of the stairs. And when I was laying there trying to go to sleep one night, I remember looking out and seeing something dark lurch to the top of the stairs and I wanted to scream I was ready to scream but I got the feeling that if I screamed if I woke everybody up and if they saw this thing whatever I was seeing it would not be okay it would just bad things would happen if others saw this too so I stayed quiet and I watched it roll towards my parents room across the landing And I barely got a wink of sleep that night. I woke up the next day, told them what happened. They got me a nightlight. They were so sure that it's nothing. We promise, we promise, we promise. The final straw of this that I really think hooked them onto believing that something was, in fact, there was when we got some other cats. Our first cat had passed away. A year later, we got new kittens. And they had the same behavior about the room. They would stare at it. They didn't want anything to do with it, but they would sit and stare for hours. They would just watch it. There was no way they could have learned this from the first cat because they did. They weren't alive at the same time. Eventually, they would kind of cl- they would both sleep on my bed in my room, and I would see them wake up all of a sudden and track something that I could not see going across the room. It was taller than me. They would just watch it, both of them, simultaneously from the corner of my room to the door. Then they'd usually leave. One night, I believe that I saw what they did in the dark. I was probably 15 at the time. I I was still kind of creeped out about shadows, understandably, given what I'd seen in the past. And I was laying there trying to calm myself down one night, like, okay, All of these dark shapes in your room can be explained. That one is your backpack. That one is the jacket you left over the chair. There's nothing here. Go to bed. And I finally got to an object that I couldn't place. 
it was kind of like one of those carnival animals that you'd get for winning a you know a big prize. It was about the size of a golden retriever, kind of roughly dog shaped and absolutely pitch black. And I tried and I could not for the life of me figure out which one of my possessions was making that shape. And so I stared at it and I kind of propped myself up on an elbow and it looked at me. Something looked at me. This overwhelming sense of not necessarily rage, but gotcha now took over. It just felt like something sneering from the corner of the room. And having seen its head turn, I screamed bloody murder. My parents, of course, come running. They think somebody's broken into the house because I am losing it in my room. You know, they flip on the lights and once again, there is nothing there. There's no proof of what I saw. It's gone. As as I got older, it it became larger than she would describe it to me as this, I want to say, a dog or wolf-like shape. And again, you just don't want to tell your child that you know, there's something there. It's it's just your imagination. She does have a vivid imagination, and for a while there, I mean, it's like as a mom, I was like, yeah, well, she's really coming up with these interesting things. But it always felt like there was something there. The following years, up until I moved out of the house for college, every now and then I'd come home from high school and I'd find my mom playing religious music out of a little tape recorder in that room, and. Years later, now that you know, I'm out of, out of college and out of the house, she told me that she believed me more than she let on. She said that she saw some of the same things not only in our house when I was a child, but in her house when she was a child. And there is a suggestion that her mother may have seen this too. It wasn't until I thought she I thought she could handle the reality of it, of that I shared things through my life that had happened, and that I could actually admit that they might actually be things that were there because they'd followed my mom and me through our lives, and now they were in hers. It was, I want to say, an uncomfortable moment because it's a mother telling her that the monster's The monsters might be real. It's it's really hard for a parent to protect your child against something that is not necessarily tangible. You can see it, um, but to reach out and push it away or or kill it or you know crush it like a bug that would scare your child. It's not something you can do that to. Um, no matter what we've done, we've managed to keep it to the outer edges where it didn't, it didn't actually make physical contact, which it ha- has at other times, not with, with Alistair. So it's difficult for a parent to admit that, yes, that monster actually is there. And this is how I dealt with it in my life. And we need to figure out how you can deal with it in your life. Not showing fear does help. Acknowledging its presence also helps. She's since moved out. We still, however, live in this house. It is still here. It doesn't show itself as much now. It's not felt as much now. But when Alistair's here and doing particular activities, it will come back. But it stays a distance. It doesn't come close. It just stays back kind of in the shadows. Now that Alisor's mom had opened up about the presence being something that could possibly be connected to her and her very own mother's past, I wanted her to shed some more light on where this all started. It, it, um, it was attached to my mother. I don't know why it attached to my mother. I had a very, very evil grandmother and a family history of dealings with darkness, which my mom wanted no part of. And that created, a, I guess, bad feelings between her and her mother 
and that side of the family. When I was a child, we moved to a house out in a place called Norco, California. And in this particular house, my mother became aware of this. I have a lot of brothers and sisters. She used to get up in the middle of the night with the baby, and it would be there. And when she became aware that it was there, and she knew it was a bad thing, she taught us kids that when we went to bed, we needed to do certain things to protect ourselves it sounds ridiculous, I know, but when you're afraid as a child and you can build this little mental little wall around your bed so the bed can't get you, but it would menace her at night. It would actually make physical contact with her at night. And as an adult, I realized what the marks were. And when you are protecting yourself, your, your, your hands and arms go up to protect your head. And all these, it used to leave bite marks on her. It would be all on the backside of her arms as if she was covering her head to protect her head and that's where all the marks used to be on the backs of her arms and her forearms and back and upper arms. We eventually actually had to have church people come out and and pray in the house (laughs) to try to deal with this. After they did that, the bite marks, I I want to say lessened. It never went away though. It's a very strong presence. You can feel it watching you. You can feel it there. It's rarely in front of you. It's usually in back of you. But it, it caused many things to happen in the house. We would have guests, and they would, we'd feel this rush through the room, and it would slam the door back and forth. I mean, hard enough for the knob to make a hole in the cement. It was harmful. It, you know, it actually pushed my dad out a window. How did this happen? What did, you know, my dad was a tall man, but he, there's no way he could have gotten out that window without like jumping up and then getting on the ledge and then going out the window. But this thing just pushed him all the way. And I don't know if that's because they wanted my dad out of the way so it could attack my mom again because my dad was very protective. It seemed to uh, be around me more, and I don't have a reason for that. I don't know why, but... I started seeing this and I, you know, said, you know, hey, mom, you ever notice this, this darkness? And she said, my mom was not very comfortable talking about it. And I think it's because she didn't want to admit that there was something there. So she did that. It's nothing. Don't worry about it. But it was there. I got the hint. Don't talk to mom about it because she, I don't know if she was afraid, whatever. But it was there. It used to be in the room with me. It didn't harm me. It frightened me. I felt menaced by it just from its sheer presence, but it didn't harm me. Um, When we moved from that house, it followed me. My mom never said, it never bothered my mom again once we moved out of the house. It followed me just being a presence in my life. It's unresolved to this day, and they still live in that house. We've never truly understood what's been going on with that room. I guess it was about maybe 13, 14. I came up with a name for this entity that I was seeing because I saw it so often. I called it Malice because that's essentially what it was. It was just this bitter, violent anger that was distilled into this dark shape that I kept seeing. And, yeah, it was known as malice from there on out. Like I said, it was, it was just always there, but I never, I never gave it a name. It was, and it didn't quite have as, as, as substantial as a shape as when Alistair saw it. Uh, but when she named it, when she gave it a name, it's like, oh, my God, it's just, it's just so fit. It's the perfect name for this thing, whatever it is. Uh, but, you know, right now, I mean, it's, it's still here. Like I said, it doesn't make itself known very often, um, but it is still here in the house where we still live. Definitely has had an effect seeing all of these things for basically my whole life, because that definitely wasn't the only thing I saw, but that was one of the most prominent ones. It's led me to write a whole trilogy's worth of books where all of the monsters and all of these creatures that occur in the books are something that I had experienced as a child. Yeah, it's, it's made for an interesting ride, that's for sure. 
The series is called the Soulfire series. It's available on Amazon. I also have alisarito.com. That's my official author page. And I'm also on Facebook as well. Janet and her husband still live in this house today. Janet believes Malice is still there, but is less active than when Alisar was living and growing up in the home. But she said when Alisar visits, it definitely reacts more to her presence. Alisar also warned me before telling this story that Malice does not like being talked about and might make it known. I don't know if this is connected, but I wanted to share a strange occurrence that happened while editing this piece. I've recently trained some assistant editors to help with the campfire episodes, and I decided to give this piece as a practice edit to one of our new trainees. The night that she did the rough pass edit on this story, she texted me a photograph of her back, which had scratches all over it. She didn't know why they were there, and felt odd that it happened while she was editing this piece. Could it be a coincidence? Or could it be that Malice truly does not like being talked about? or the fact that we are listening to this story right now. Thanks for listening to Campfire Episode 2. These types of shows will continue to be released on the second Monday of each month. We're currently looking for more personal ghost stories, so if you or someone you know has one, please submit it to us for consideration. Go to thenightowlpodcast.com, click on the Submit Your Story page, and let us hear your ghost story. We'd love to consider it for the show. Our usual investigative series will continue on their regular schedule the last Monday of each month. So be sure to tune in on February 25th as we continue our investigation at Buenos Aires Cafe, where a significant number of employees there want answers for what presence they have felt and seen in the building. Join my team and I as we dive into historical research and bring Sarah to see if we can provide any answers or validation for the experiences everyone is having at this cafe on East 6th Street in Austin, Texas. And I'd like to thank my team, Sarah, Alexis, and Franklin for going on these crazy adventures with me, Nicholas Fair and Petey Wilder for your talented musical contributions to the show, and my very supportive wife, Tao, for sticking with me all these late nights and long hours and for taking amazing photographs on every case. And last but not least, David Dalton of Driftwork Sound for mastering every single episode on the tight turnarounds I give him. Please support their works by visiting our website, thenightowlpodcast.com, and clicking on the About tab. There you can find links to all their individual works and websites. And to help keep this show going, and my team and I fed and caffeinated, please support us for as little as a dollar a month on our Patreon page. This contribution not only helps me keep this show alive, you gain access to a ton of cool behind-the-scenes stuff. So please visit patreon.com backslash thenightowlpodcast and become a Night Owl patron today. And a special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Oh Boy Print Shop. If you have the need for custom t-shirt printing, you can feel at ease in the hands of Oh Boy Print Shop. Be sure to mention the Night Owl podcast to get $50 off your first order. Thank you all, and stay restless out there. This podcast was mastered by David Dalton of Driftwork Sound. If you're ready to up the production quality of your podcast or music, go to driftworksound.com. That's D-R-I-F-T worksound.com and get your project mixed, mastered, or produced using well-established methods and unconventional techniques. That's driftworksound.com. And remember, your first master is completely free.